Hello, hello. Happy Friday. Happy everyone. Friday, everybody. Is anybody happy that it's Friday at all? I am. Even remotely yeah. happy. Yeah. Yes. Yes, definitely. We have one announcement, which is a little bit far out, but we just want to make sure that you're definitely aware. So Thanksgiving week, um, we are not meeting in here for the lecture on Monday, nor are we meeting in sections on Wednesday. However, we're still having class. We're just going to have it in a different way. We're going to have some things for you to watch and listen to. And we're going to have that up on the schedule on the course website where you see readings and things to do. So, so just so you know. So stay tuned. So stay tuned. So you can do that stuff from a distance, though. You could do it on the other side of the world. You could do it right here in Newburgh. So that's Thanksgiving yes. week. That's coming up. Not next week, but the week after that. That is gospel news to many people here <laughs> in, this, in this auditorium. Any cancellation is yes, always. It's not a cancellation, though. It's no, just a different kind of thing. Substitution is the word. Substitution yes. the thing. Also, did you all get the email about this book? Athanasius yes. on the Incarnation. This was on the list of required texts at the beginning of the semester. Probably 99% of you already had it. I know, I know. Yes, but, but for the 1% who don't, for the one we wanted to remind you to get it. It's a very short book, and you're not going to be even reading all of it. It's really, um, it's one of the most important theological books in the history of Christianity, actually. Um, so we're really excited. You're going to be reading that over the next three weeks. Um, and so, yeah, so who, who is this guy? Oh, who, yeah. Who is this? Uh, first off, he has a really awesome name, Athanasius. Every now and then there are like kind of Christian hipster names and I keep waiting for Athanasius to What would you off. call him for short? Ath? Athen? That'd be hard to say. I heard that, yeah. Nas? Nasius? I think you call him Nas. N-A-S. Oh, yeah, I like it, yeah. I think that's um, what you call him. So yeah, Athanasius is one of the uh, early architects of the Christian church and he is from Alexandria, Egypt. So he is uh, from North Africa, and uh, which Alexandria was one of the most important cities in the early church. It, it gave the early church a lot of its uh, top theologians. And Athanasius got in a famous church argument with a guy named Arius. Apparently, a lot of important Christian theologians, their name begins with A. Um, but uh, over the person of Jesus and who Jesus is and was and how he saves us. It's important to know as you read this book, and you should start this weekend to make sure that you're ready, and we'll talk more about it on Monday morning as well. It's important to know, I think, that the early centuries of Christianity were really like a wild period. I mean, yeah. they were still trying to figure out basic things, like, and there was no real, there was no sense like, oh, this is what all Christians do and must believe. They were like working that out during that time, and so by reading this, you're reading a, ch a champion of working that out. One thing that you mentioned, him being from Alexandria, that I find super fascinating, sometimes when I think of these old authors, uh, Athanasius, Augustine, whomever, I, maybe it's because I'm white, but I think to myself, oh yeah, these old white guys. He was an African and definitely not white. <laughs> like this guy who did this, right? Is, yeah. that, is that true? Yeah, and one of the things that we want to remind everybody uh, who is, who, all, of all, all of us who are taking this class is that the Christian church is a global movement and uh, one of our most important founding fathers is, in fact, from Egypt. And so that's just something to keep in mind. And also, um, I think that one of, the, one of the most interesting things to me, I'm a church historian, so I nerd out about this stuff, is that a lot of the big important doctrines of the Christian tradition come from, and, and some of the professors have mentioned this, come from deep disagreement. Mm. Christians having very, very, very strong disagreement with one another. Have you ever gotten into like a big argument about God with anyone? Like every day. 
<laughs> right, right. So, you know, I actually think those things are really fun. Um, but this, this point of disagreement is an opportunity for Christians to really think deeply about who Jesus is and what he means. So if you have heard anything you've disagreed with about Jesus, about God this semester, either from the stage or from your own personal uh, conversations with people, you can look at it not necessarily as the worst thing in the world to happen, but maybe more like an opportunity to actually think deeply about totally. who God is and what uh, it means to follow after Yeah, God. an opportunity to clarify what you think. Like in this class, raise your hands, do some hand raising. Yeah, I like Have that. Have you ever heard a single thing that you agreed with? Anything at all? Have you ever heard a thing a that you agreed with? A single thing, yeah. Have you ever heard a single thing that you disagreed with in this room? Excellent. That is, okay. that is the way it is to be. That is the right answer. <laughs> okay? Right there. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's one of the um, challenges and opportunities of being a Christian. Um, it means that we are in conversation with one another. And being a Christian in, a, in an institution like George Fox, that ha we're, we, we ha welcome students um, from a variety of backgrounds. And in fact, we have professors uh, from a variety of backgrounds, too. What a great segue to introduce the panel for yes. me to take the mic out yes. there. We're going to have Jenna Richards, time. our head TA, on the mic. Jenna, oh, this is working. Okay, great. I'll give it back. Yes, we are very excited. Um, I want to welcome our, our panel this morning, and we'll just start with our, our speaker uh, from Monday. You all know Dr. Joseph Clare. He's the dean of the College of Christian Studies. He's also a, a theological ethicist and historian. We're super happy that he is with us. I think someone from your section, or maybe just someone generally, gave you a little round of applause there. So welcome, Dr. Clare. <laughs> We're also welcoming Pastor Kenji Yokoi, pastor from a Japanese International Baptist Church in Tigard, Oregon. Welcome, Pastor. Thank you for having me. We are super, super excited. And um, who also is a participant in Portland Seminary's uh, Thriving in Ministry um, grant and opportunity. We're super excited that you're here. Um, we also have another one of our um, professors and also pastor, Pastor Dominic Doan from um, Westside, a Jesus Church, in the, on the border of Tigard and Portland, so kind of in the same area, and also host of Pursuing Faith, a new podcast, and also someone who's going to be teaching a special class uh, this spring. 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 <laughs> I was like, which season will we be in? What is that class, Pastor? Yeah, in the spring, I'll be teaching a, a class called Faith and Doubt. Ooh. And we'll be talking about what faith is, what doubt is, and how we can move through our doubts in pursuit of faith. Um, yeah, so really excited for it. And any of you guys are welcome to join. All right, excellent. Well, welcome to the panel. Thank you. All right, so I want to start with um, uh, first question of the day goes to Dr. Claire, and then we'll poll the students to see what y'all might want to ask about. But Dr. Claire, in your lecture, you talked about a really striking moment in American history that is from, from the fairly recent past, um, your friend who was an interrogator at Abu Ghraib. And um, you, you did a... I thought it was a really striking illustration of the tensions that a Christian feels between um, their their allegiance to their nation and maybe and also their allegiance to Jesus. Could you talk a little bit about? Uh, could you share a little bit with the students about Abu Ghraib and why that would have been such a critical moment in your friend's life? Yeah, thank you so much, and thank you guys for listening. It's always fun for me to remember my buddy Joshua. 
Um, Abu Ghraib, I don't know if you'll recollect this, I don't know how old you were, but there was a, a scandal there um, after the first year of its existence. A lot of detainees were there, jihadists that were just kind of rounded up from all around Iraq um, after 2001 in search of uh, Osama bin Laden and in search of the perpetrators and the networks behind the September 11th attacks. Uh, many of these detainees were treated in inhuman ways and they were like photographed on phones and this began to leak. So Joshua, for whatever reason, he was super talented um, as a linguist. So he picked up Arabic extremely quickly and he was, he's just a compelling, eloquent figure. And so he was brought in as a special interrogator at age whatever he was, how old were we, um, 24, to be like the second wave of interrogators to try to clean things up. And I know the way that I told that story left a lot of questions open, as they should remain for you um, as Christians wrestling with how your allegiance to Christ as king squares with your allegiance to any given political community and its authority and the obligations that you have to serve that state in different ways. Now, depending on your vocation, that's going to cash out differently um, for you as a citizen of a country. But for him, his role-specific spe obligations he felt were at odds with his commitments to Christ ways. Um, I, he died too soon for me to fully work out what that meant for him. Uh, since then, the Geneva Conventions and different requirements about um, treatments of detainees and terrorism, terrorists especially, and what torture amounts to, and what, whether or not certain practices of interrogation cross a line into torture where you're treating someone as less than human. Uh, that's a live question now is the report. We still figure out what the report from Guantanamo means. So he was very alive to that. So I would say this about Joshua is he left the army under the impression that, and he was honorably discharged, that he could not carry out his role-specific obligations. And he was performing what he saw as selective conscientious objection, which you can't do in the military. You can only conscientiously object to the whole thing and be honorably discharged if you're awarded that status. There is no way to selectively object to your specific um, sort of task. Um, so he wrestled with that, but as he left the army, he moved into what was a more full-blown pacifist approach, um, which is very similar to the Quaker approach um, to Christian ethics that founded the school, and that is Christians under no uh, situation or authority use lethal force uh, to enact justice in the world. We simply don't kill and certainly don't treat people inhumanely or unjustly or less uh, than is commensurate with their dignity and worth as a human being. And for him, that was, a, that was a unified position. It's a very strong stand. It's a stand that I wasn't able to fully go um, with him toward as someone who's, who thinks in the just war um, tradition of Christian ethics. But all that to say is this is an invitation to you all to take theological ethics in the theology program here uh, <laughs> at the university because these are just such complex uh, questions that require you to know scripture, require you to know church history, require you to know ethics. I also encourage you to take things like biblical basis for peacemaking taught in our Quaker studies program here at the university so you can understand more of what animates this university. Thank you so much. Well, I think what's really striking about that is he was not, not that much older than most of the students here in this room when he was faced with that decision. So I really appreciate you sharing that. All right, so I have a ton of other questions. Wait, but could I do this plug? I forgot to do a plug. You're, you're the dean. 
Plug away. Plug away. <laughs> Joshua was an amazing writer, and when he got out, he published this book called Letters from Abu Ghraib. Oh, wow. So if you want to know more about his situation. In this, this year, 2019, the Smithsonian did a huge article on uh, the 17-year-long war we've now had going in the Middle East and the struggle for some folks to come back and reintegrate into their lives here, and he was the main feature in the Smithsonian. It was the February edition this year so he's he's it's an amazing compelling story joshua castile is his last name so learn more about him thank you excellent all right so we're gonna kick it to jenna uh to see if we have any questions from students i have a ton raise your hand if you have a question yes you want to no oh there's a written one Uh aha but do we i want to hear from like a voice first before i read this i'm gonna pull a brian and do that so someone has to talk. <laughs> <laughs> Brian Ardoke. Just one. Have we figured out what Brian's middle name is yet? <laughs> A couple guesses. Oh, I think I heard it. <laughs> one person. Be the brave one. No, do you want me to look through the written ones? Okay. What's up? Where are the questions? Oh. Okay, this, this is really terrible. good, and it pertains to a lot of what you were saying with your friend. So would you say that Christians are wrong or worshiping an idol by supporting their country or having nationalistic views? Ooh, okay. So why don't we start... I, I really appreciate that question. Professor Doan, do you want to take a crack at that first? Oh, man. Uh... Well, I was born in England, so we could talk about the Queen. There you go. You yeah. Um, yeah. You, <laughs> you know, just took your citizen. You, well, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. 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 So, our our Lord is Jesus, and I, I don't think that necessarily has to be in complete tension with love of country. Um, about a year ago, I was up in Canada, and uh, at the beginning of this church service, where they invited me to come speak, um, I guess it was their like Canadian version of. Uh, the 4th of July, and he gets up there and he's like, uh, do you want to sing our, our song, A? Eh? And everyone's like, yes. And so they sang their national, you know, their national Canadian song. And at first it kind of threw me. I'm like, what? This is kind of odd in a church setting. But then I talked to the pastor afterwards. He's like, you know, we just, it's not like a weird, like, worship of country thing. We just are thankful to be here. And I think that kind of version of, of patriotism is an awesome thing. Where, but when it begins to push Jesus aside or the values of our faith aside, then there's a tension. And we certainly see that tension in the early church. Oh, wow. Oh, Pastor Yoko, what do you think about that? I was born in Japan, and um, just like a pastor. Not, not, not in Japan, of course, but a foreigner. <laughs> but I just, um, I just got my citizenship about a year ago. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. And... Uh, I am, I am super proud to be an American, and we did, you know, the uh, Pledge of Allegiance, and I actually led it um, in, the, uh, in the, uh, the court, and it was a really powerful moment, but um, I don't know how much more I can add on to what you said, but um, I agree. I agree with what you said, uh, that um, I've heard that before. It's a really, really good question, um, but when th- that moment when, when Jesus does begin to be pushed aside, that's when we need to begin questioning, but... Uh, I see in scripture people loving their nation as well. And so I see no contradiction there. Yeah, I 
like Leah, I love church history, so I think about this historically. Um, so there's been three phases, I think, of answers to this question of how Christians relate to the state. And the early answer was like the first 300 years of the church. And it was very easy to answer because Christians were being killed by the state, by the Roman Empire. They were an affront because they were calling someone else curios. They were living a totally alternate lifestyle. Tons of Christians, like they are around the world today, in different states were killed for their faith. And so there was a kind of opposition between Christianity and the state. And so they could live very purely out the peaceable kingdom, the new vision of a kingdom, not fighting back, but going humbly into the circus and the arena to be eaten by the animals in front of the, the empire. But then slowly, more and more Christians, uh, people become Christians who are themselves involved in the state. They are soldiers or they are involved in politics. And then finally, around the year 300, the emperor becomes a Christian. So that kind of, that, that poses a new question when the Emperor Constantine becomes a Christian. And slowly this new sort of vision unfolds that says, well, why wouldn't Christianity in the new kingdom start transforming this kingdom now? Why don't we start living out those kingdom ethics in large and small ways? And so that's a period you could call not opposition, but transformation or absorption between the state and the church. And that's kind of what we call Christendom last for about a, a millennium, oh, a thousand years. Uh, Got to learn more about that. It's a complicated one. But then by the time of the Reformation in the early modern period, people say, whoa, we've been too cozy between the aims of the church and the state. We need to separate these two things and include, that's enshrined in our own constitution, the separation between the institutional entities. We do want them to touch, but they will touch through the morals and the values and the character of citizens and officials. We can translate faith into the life of the state. And that's kind of where we are as modern, uh, liberal, uh, democratic people, liberal in the sense of, not of citizen, not liberal or progressive or conservative, but just uh, committed to this view of self-governing citizens. So I think as Christians, we're actually in a really hard period, Christians in democracies like America, answering exactly what it means for us to have loyalty to the state. But I, I still think even in our era, you cannot forget that Christ's call of discipleship and commitment to him as Lord is a challenge to all of our affinities and loyalties other than to him. I mean, he even says crazy stuff about your family. Unless you're willing to leave your family, hate your mother and father to come follow me, you're not worthy to be a disciple. So he, I think, affirms our natural loyalties to family, to community, to school, to alma mater, George Fox, to country. But all of those affections and affinities need to be lowercase compared to the capital loyalty that we owe to him as Lord. And when they're in conflict, you need to discern that and live that out. I think Jenna. we actually have a question. All right. So pass it down. Hi, my name is, whoa, my name is Tyler Newkirk. Um, on Wednesday, we read a passage from Romans 13, which talks about all authority being given from God. And it leaves it really broad and really open to interpretation. And it basically says, rebelling against authority is rebelling against God. And there's obviously a lot to interpret and decide there. So how do you, how do you balance, what if your authority is bad? What if like Martin Luther King was rebelling against authority and the Bible says don't rebel against authority. So how do you balance having an authority that's going against God and God saying that all authority is from God? 
Oh, where do you, wow. Where do you find whether you should just obey your authority or whether you should rebel against it? If you're not a theology major yet, you should you be, are my a friend. You're a prime yes. candidate. I want you to take my history of Christianity in America class. Great too, question. Young, sir. Thank you. Okay. All right. We're all advertising classes. <laughs> so I, that, that phrase, like, Jesus is Lord, was, was kind of a, not just a spiritual statement, but it was also a very political one. Um, and as Joseph brilliantly pointed out on Monday's lecture, uh, saying that, that Caesar is Lord, this is like actually part of their, their culture. And uh, under certain um, emperors, you were required by law to, to pinch incense uh, at the altar and, and to say that Caesar was Lord. And it was a way of saying my allegiance ultimately is to the system. Um, the early Christians, though, saw it differently. And by them saying Jesus is Lord, it was an act of rebellion, if you would. It was a way of them saying, actually, our, our deeper allegiance, our, our truest allegiance, it is not here. It's not based or wrapped up in some empire, but rather it's based on the person of Jesus Christ. And so that's where it comes back to when, when the government, uh, when the political system is demanding our allegiance in something that is not Jesus, then we have to make a decision and are, as followers of Jesus, our ultimate allegiance is to him. What do, what, do, what do all y'all think? Man, that's a big one. Do you have any thoughts, Kenji? I actually want to hear what you have to say. <laughs> oh, no. I want to hear what I have to say, too. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I paired those readings up. I hope you picked up. So the new kingdom in Isaiah 2 is a kingdom where all the nations come to the true ruler. And the ruler says, let me show, how, show you how to beat your swords into plows and your spears into pruning hooks. So the new kingdom is a peaceable kingdom. And yet we also get vignettes in Jesus' teaching and certainly at the end of the Bible in Revelation that says judgment is coming. So that we ourselves are not supposed to mete out that judgment through violence now. There is, as we'll get to later in the creed, a day coming um, when he shall judge the living and the dead. We have to wrestle with what that means. So we're kind of living in this time between the times. He has come once announcing the kingdom. He will come again, and that's what we do as we enter into Advent in a couple weeks in the church calendar to remember his first and his second coming. But that's an easy end run around your question. Your question is, how could Paul say that all governing authority is given by God when he's writing knowing that he's about to be sentenced to death for his faith, which he fundamentally is, and it's carried out in Rome? How can you say that governing authorities from God when it kills you for following Jesus as Lord? I mean, there's some kind of deep irony there, but I think Paul is, is opening up this bigger question, which says governments, good governments, are aimed at just societies. That is where people are treated justly. They're each is given their due. Um, crime is prevented in these ways so people can live peaceably and flourish. There's a kind of natural order to that that God has scripted into creation, and he is behind it mysteriously by divine providence. But man, when you're talking about Nero, Paul's writing that during the reign of Nero, who's lighting candles like, lighting Christians like candles on fire in his garden for his own private delight. Uh, or you're thinking about the Third Reich and Hitler or something. Is that, you know, God's good governing authority being worked out mysteriously through providence? It's hard to say yes. To that. So Christians, beginning with Thomas Aquinas in the Middle Ages and Martin Luther King Jr. in the Civil Rights Movement, say, no, 
an unjust law is no law at all. So as soon as we know a government and its uh, prescribed actions are unjust, they are fundamentally outside of the order of divine providence, and we can actually practice what's called civil disobedience, as Henry David Thoreau calls it, as King calls it. And indeed, many of the great democratic um, countries like our own were founded on this principle that the, the kings overseeing us are actually tyrants and unjust, and that we have the freedom to be revolutionary because we're seeking to have a just society. And so there actually is this strong streak in Protestant Christianity especially that says an unjust law or an unjust rule is no rule or law at all, and that Christians have uh, a responsibility to resist it in key ways. But yeah, it's a huge issue. I think of um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's yes. book, The Cost yes. of Discipleship. And um, what I was thinking, too, was that it was written in during the time of Nero, um, one of the most violent, boy. Romans right, right, right. Romans, yeah, Bonhoeffer during Hitler. Yeah, Bonhoeffer wasn't, he'd be really old then. He'd be really old. But I've always been amazed by that text. It's a really, really good question. Um, I kind of hit it from the other side, where I look at Paul's, utter and complete faith in God's sovereignty. It's like that even through such a terrible thing, terrible thing, it's going to eventually cost in his life that he would still say, hey, you got to honor your leaders above you. And I'm not saying, just, just like a professor said, you don't need to, to like, like what Dietrich Bonhoeffer did, rebelled against the Nazis. Um, there is that civil disobedience component, but um, I really want to emulate that kind of trust in God, that kind of dependence in, on, his, on his sovereignty. Um, especially in America, I travel to different states, but we're a very legal-centered um, country. We take people to court all the time, and we want justice, right? That's a real buzzword. But um, to be able to say that even though things are unfair in my life, being able to say, God, you've got my back, I love that. I love that about that passage. Okay, thank you. Great question. I think it's worth noting that many like Christians in these United States have diverse answers to that. So some Christians see no problem whatsoever with, you know, proud to be an American flying flag, pledge of allegiance. Some think that it's unfaithful to the Christian life to engage in that even in this country. So there's a wide variety of answers. Thank you so much for that. Jenna, what do you have for us? Yeah, I think we still have a question. Okay. Hello, my name is Mark. My question, you guys have made it very clear that Jesus is the ultimate authority and the one we're following. So is there really any point at all in following earthly leaders, especially in political context, committing to either Republican or liberal? Does it, does it even matter? Oh, wow. Should okay, you just give up so Republican, Democrat, many other less populated parties. Jesus for king. Yeah, Jesus, Jesus for, for president. president yeah. Yeah. Did you write in Jesus for November president? November 2020. Someone close yeah. to me does that every single year. Yeah. <laughs> Independent. Oh, it's such a good question. Um, you know, I think, I think to Leah's point, those twin impulses that I described about the early church, the kind of pre-Constantine, like let's be separate and oppose the state and be this rarefied, small, countercultural, truly peaceful, just community, um, or to say, 
let's absorb this baby and transform this baby and make, Christ, make America Christian again or something like that. Those impulses are still with us in present contemporary Christianity, and I think you can, you can stray, in my view, in either direction. Um, I, I think, Mark, to your point, the bottom line is that we have to get the vertical lordship right of getting Christ as our king, and that that was, I was, I was trying to illustrate that with what I saw in my friend Joshua. It was like such a powerful commitment to Christ as king that it then relativized all of his other loyalties and allegiances, not to make him a bad son or a bad citizen, but they were, they were seen as temporal in comparison to this eternal commitment that he had made, and that that actually freed him to more joyfully understand what his responsibility was to this worldly politics. And I think that that's the, the air we breathe now in a secular society. Secular just means we've kind of let go of a spiritual or religious or theological understanding. We kind of think, all that is is here right now you can touch taste see it feel it it's a material world that's it that so intensifies the pressure and the seriousness of getting politics right getting our common lives right because we have no hope of anything beyond this whatsoever and i think that that kind of like lowered ceiling and intense pressure of the secular makes us think that those allegiances matter way more than they do because my my thing is this is there's a lot of open questions in scripture in political ethics. Like some people think the translation of Jesus's teachings is universal health care for all. Some people think the translation of Jesus's teachings is definitely protecting the innocent life of babies in the womb. You can see how you get to both of those places out of the scriptures, but there's not a clear like boom. You just trot the scripture out, name it put it in political law and make everybody bow down to it. So it's this intense work of keeping Jesus Lord and then finding how do we actually bring and translate our faith into the public arena. But man, I just think, I think Jesus would be, I think he'd be aghast at the two-party tribal tweet-a-thon. I think it's a joke and I think he'd call it for what it is. <laughs> tweet-a-thon, that's a good, that's a tweetable <laughs> yeah. word right there. I like it. Um, pastors, I'd like to ask you as pastors, how would you address this question? Uh, I, I think we're kind of politically homeless, <laughs> a lot of us right now, because we kind of see things on either side that seem contrary to the heart of Jesus. And your question like draws out, I think, this longing uh, for a kingdom that is not of this world. And like you were saying, that our role as followers of Jesus isn't to exclude ourselves from society, but rather to invest ourselves in society. Jesus said, you are salt and you are light. And salt in the ancient world was, was used to, as a preservation, but also it was pressed into meat and fish or whatever to give it flavor. And, and I think our role is really to be pressed in and invested in society, to be a, a faithful presence there um, while trying our best to reflect the reality, the beauty of Jesus and, and his kingdom, uh, which is taking ground, which is transforming the system from the outside in or inside out. Um, the church can be a really tricky place because um, what are the two things you never discuss with strangers, right? <laughs> Religion and politics, right? And you have, you have both within the church walls. But for us, the way we approach it is um, there are going to be people with differing opinions. My personal opinion is that Jesus would not be a Democrat or a Republican. He just wouldn't. Um, but in the church, being able to have these conversations and being able to disagree with other believers 
and for that to be okay and for that not to divide us you know like this bible study over here is just for the democrats and over here is for the republicans and and it, it can't be that way because christ's love overrides everything regardless of our differences we need to be able to come together and love each other and that is what keeps us together christ's blood and his love and it's a really good test actually for us because can we stand up under the differing opinions that we have in political views and so on and so forth and so far we have because his love is just that great i think of the passage um where jesus says to peter render unto caesar what is caesar's and to god what is god's and i feel like in this political realm it's the same that god doesn't want you to you know, go out and, and be Republican or Democrat. Or, that's not what he's about. That's not what he wants from us. But he wants our hearts. He wants our love, our worship. That's, I just want to tack on, I love hearing pastors talk because it reminds me that many of the questions we face are not always theoretical, but they're about our embodied lives. And actually, I had lunch with someone yesterday, Dom, who said, they go to your church, uh, Westside, and uh, I was like, oh, yeah, yeah it's great, great teachers. Like, yeah, we actually haven't been for a long time. We just kind of stream in on Sundays, and no big deal. And I was kind of like, I don't know if you approve of that, but I don't, <laughs> I don't fully approve of that. Um, I obviously, I understand our digital lives, blah, 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 but I think one of the beautiful uh, and uber important parts of the church today is that we get together as human beings in time and space and bodies and all of our complexity and insufficiency and we actually see the way ideas have consequences ideas matter in relationship our views have a context in our communities and I, I swear we'll find out in the long run that digital life and social media has polarized us in ways that we're just absolutely not as polarized as we think we are on the internet because we're not working out our ideas face to face in the flesh with other human beings. I think church is one of those last third spaces in society where you can actually have conversations and disagree and love and support and get to know each other. And I, I really think you've gotta be part of the body of Christ and that means a time and a place and a body on Sunday mornings and beyond. Well, we've talked a lot about politics and our, our allegiance to, to Jesus in relationship to that. I'm, I wanna prep you all with a question, then I'm gonna kick it to Jenna, and then we'll, this may be, it may end up being the last question, but besides allegiance to particular political parties or the, the authorities of this world, um, well, not authorities, what other than politics is competition for lordship? I'm a, I want to ask you to reflect on that while we hear this other question. Right, you still have a question? Okay. Hi, I'm Megan. Um, I guess I've been thinking about how there are a ton of paradoxes that can be noticed about how God works, like a slave in order to be free, death in order to have life. And I guess, can you speak to like the significance of God using paradox through Jesus, through his relationship with humanity? Like, is he a God of paradox? And like, what does that mean? Megan. Okay, theology major. There's a book you might yeah. like uh, by G.K. Chesterton. Um, that he's, he was kind of the master of, of paradox uh, called orthodoxy. I think, I think you'd love that. The answer is yes, I think he is. 
What other reflections on paradox? There are so many amazing questions. Those are some of the questions that I've had too. And um, I feel like in my experience walking with the Savior, um, that kind of paradoxical nature has been really helpful for me because A, it forces me to think and to consciously make a decision rather than just going through the motions of my life. Um, And secondly, his ways are so different than mine that over the years, it's been easier and easier for me to begin to hear his voice and to follow because it's so different than mine. Does that make sense? Um, He is definitely a God of paradox. He's so far beyond our own understanding. Dr. Claire? Yeah, there's, well, we should do a class on paradox, um, a whole <laughs> semester. It's so good. Um, yeah, this idea that there's a paradox or a belief, like beliefs that seem incompatible but are reconcilable at some higher mysterious level. I get a little nervous about paradox and mystery. It's always like trotted out as the final solution for every problem you stumble across <laughs> in, in theology. And I always think you got to know when to play the paradox card. Um, and when uh, it's actually just like smoke or screen for something you just can't possibly understand. But my, my sense of this is that God needs to unsettle and upset and surprise my rigid constructs of him and of life and of faith because there's too much of me in it. So for me, one of the great paradoxes has been like, I'm a moral philosopher. That's what I'm trained in. I'm all about virtue, virtue, virtue. That's all I talk about. Let's get virtuous. And the more I've gotten deep in my Christian life, I realize that it's not so much about virtue as moral muscle, but it's about the gift of grace that comes from God. Or what Paul says, uh, you know, he calls the fruit of the spirit. It's actually not you at all, but it's the spirit growing fruit in your moral life, that that's where the real stuff is. But I thought it was all about me and the hard work I was doing to become moral. And then I find out it's a gift at the end of the day. The thing I would say about this is, The other richest experiences I've had other than faith and salvation that include those same paradoxes are things like marriage, uh, things like having kids, where you think it's one way, you think you knew what you were getting into and going after, and then you're totally surprised that it's like almost the opposite of what you thought it was, but it's way better. And it's in that that kind of, that's the spiritual life because there's joy there. Otherwise, it would be so freaking boring, I think. Yeah, that brings to mind a book that Dr. Doak recommended to me about parenting called All Joy, No Fun. (laughs) That's a paradox. Okay, y'all, you're going to come back to us in like 15 years and be like, you were so right. Um, So uh, in the spirit of paradox, if others have that same question, I I welcome or I, I want to invite you to read Athanasius with that question of paradox in mind. Um, So we have, I want to invite you all to a lightning round. We have about a couple of minutes left. In your opinion, what are the biggest competitors for the lordship of Jesus in the average Christian's life today? Could be yours, could be just generally what you see. I mean, I think saying Jesus is Lord has implications for absolutely everything. Like our finances, our generosity, our relationships, our sexuality, our emotional life, where we go online. Like if Jesus is Lord, uh, that is going to 
infiltrate who we are as individuals and what we do and, and where we go. And so it's a constant battle. You know, Paul, he talked about this, this wrestling between the flesh and the spirit. And there's this desire. He says, I, I want to be this way, but, but so often I'm not. And he's like, oh, wretched man that I am, who can deliver me from the body of this death? Because we say Jesus is Lord. And yet many times, if we're honest, like we, we don't live that out. Um, but the good news is there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Jesus. That even when we fail in, in that respect, uh, his grace, here's the paradox, right? Uh, the, the, his grace is sufficient for us to pick us back up and continue us on in the journey. All right, lightning round answers. What do you think? Biggest competitors? Thank you. I want to go before you because you always give such good answers. No, give me a break. Um, from my personal experience, this is straight from my heart. My family. Hmm. Um, this is an area that, that I'm continually having to live in tension with and still haven't figured out yet. Um, I'm from a pastor's home, so my father was a pastor as well, and so am I, and I've been pastoring for 18 years full-time now. Um, when I, when my first boy, we have five children, but when my oldest son was born, I remember my world transforming and thinking John 3.16 is completely and entirely new to me now because I would never give my only son for anybody. I remember thinking that. And growing up in a pastor's home, sometimes you get put on the back burner and, um, my parents did a fabulous job. All, of, all, of our, all the children, there's six of us, we all walk with the Lord, we love the Lord, we're serving in ministry. My older brother's a pastor too as well. But I remember thinking, you know what, I don't want my children to experience the kind of loneliness that I experienced because my parents were always gone. And so what often happens is the pendulum swings and now I'm on the other side where I can often spend too much time with family or give too much focus and love and, you know, attention and, and so that my children don't experience what I experienced. Mm -hmm. And it's difficult to understand if you don't come from a pastor's home, well, maybe, you know what, maybe your parents worked a lot. Maybe that pastoral um, career uh, was, uh, could be replaced by just work. All right. Oh, I sorry hate to that. cut you off, no, but no, 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 these students know that they need to write an essay here really oh, soon. Oh, got it, okay. Yes, and so, or pastor, Dr. Pastor Claire, Joe. Dr. Yeah. Claire, one, one very quick answer, and uh, why don't you students take your pieces of paper It's kind of embarrassing. It's kind of embarrassing to say, but myself, definitely. Mm. Mm. Wow. All right. I think that's the Christian life in a nutshell. <laughs> All right, so students, take your pieces of paper out. You are about to respond uh, to a question. Name and box number Name at the top. Name and box number and date, please. Date is 11 slash 15. Thank you. Can we thank the panel here? By the way, we didn't say the creed today. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs>